some visuals up there in a few moments. So we've been walking through the book of Genesis. We've been studying the beginning because in the beginning, a lot of the foundations for the rest of the scripture are laid. So anytime we do any sort of um, study on whatever it is, you're going to start back in the beginning. So we covered uh, God, who God is, his aseity, or depending on what part of the word you're from, aseity. We covered the nature of God. We covered creation, six days, seventh day God rested, evolutionary theories. We covered uh, our most recent Genesis one was gender. Not just gender roles, but gender period, with Facebook now having uh, at least 58 gender selections other than male-female, right? So if you go, you sign up on Facebook, it asks you your gender, and you're going to get 58 options, all right? We, we preach through the goodness of gender. Right now in society, they are trying to erase erase gender distinctions among the sexes. Uh, the curriculum is already being pumped out in public schools. So if you missed that sermon, check it out. It's on the internet. This week, this is going to be a two-part series. This is going to be part one, Into the Shadow Land. Genesis chapter three, Into the Shadow Land. I'm like, what in the world is this? This is going to be, I mean, it's all about sin. All about sin. Chapter three of Genesis is where everything changed, right? God created the world. It was good. He created man, male and female in his image and likeness. They got married. It was beautiful. He sang a poem to her. It was the greatest day that had ever been as of yet. And God said it was very good. And then something went wrong very quickly. And that's what we're going to examine today. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to walk through the Genesis passage this week, make a few connections with the rest of the scriptures, and then next week we're going to tie in a more systematic fashion the, the doctrine that we develop here across all of scripture and see exactly how impactful this really is today. Now, why Into the Shadowland? Why is the, what's, where's the title come from? Is that just like this weird like sci-fi thing? Actually, those of you who may be familiar at all, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last book of The Chronicles of Narnia, the last chapter of the last book called The Last Battle, the last chapter is entitled Farewell to the Shadowlands. And in it, Aslan, who represents the hero, Jesus, in the story, refers to the real world that they had come from as the Shadowlands. And now the day is dawning. And so if they were saying farewell, well, Genesis 3, we're jumping into, we're saying hello to the Shadowlands. It doesn't take a lot of effort for me to convince you that something is broken in our world. Nick, so wisely pointed out whenever I was telling him the sermon this morning, he said, well, you're really a, a, littering, uh, a walking literal illustration of the fall and its effects because I'm struggling right now with a cold, right? Just sickness invading the world, weakness, brokenness, 
vile wickedness, all of it is, doesn't take long. I mean, even recently, this past week, in the headlines of Kahului, a 25-year-old man murdered his mother at 43 years old, bludgeoning her to death with a knife and a baseball bat. What world does a child, for any reason, kill his mother? Or in what world does a mother kill her children? Where people who are made in the image and likeness of God will kill other people for various reasons. There's something wrong with our world. Everybody agrees with this. And so we're going to pray and we're going to get jumped right into this. The scriptures answer as to what's wrong with the world is sin. Romans 5 says sin through one man's disobedience, sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men. The scriptures answer to what's broken in the world is sin. The scriptures solution is Christ. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would, by your grace and power, get a glimpse of your holiness this morning, that we would hate sin and see it for what it is, an assault on your glory. And Father, I thank you that we preach on this side of the cross, Looking back at the garden, I thank you that you have paid the penalty for sin and that you offer forgiveness, free forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. So, Father, would you do that this morning? Uh, would you do that for your name, I pray? Amen. All right. Uh, I think I'm supposed to tell you we do have a children's church from K to fifth grade. If you would like to release your children, they can go around and one of our deacons will walk them to their class. If you would like to have them with you, we welcome that also. That's awesome. So, number one, we got four points. We're going to follow that as seen on the screen. The command, the challenge, the curse, and the cross. So that's how we're going to walk through Genesis chapter 3. The command, the challenge, the curse, and the cross. Number one, the command. We find the command in Genesis chapter 2, 16, and 17. And this is what it says. Notice first the underlined, right? Who commanded? God commanded. God is the source. So whenever we breach God's laws, it is literally an offense against who? God. God himself. Because his laws are a reflection of his character and his goodness. It's not like when you break the speed limit, the mayor, Alan Arakawa, is not in his office crying like, man, no. The laws of God are a breach against God himself. God commanded, you may eat of, ev and this is kind of summarizing, but mostly word for word, you may eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely Die. Now, remember what happened? God made the world, and he created everything therein, and he made a garden, right? So this is the best garden that has ever, ever existed because it was planted by God himself. So those who like to garden, nothing. You just, that's, that's child's play. It's, it's weeds. It's trash compared to the Garden of Eden. 
and God had man and woman, and this is really his first home where God walked with man. Now, pay attention. I won't develop this a whole lot now, but for yourself later as you study, this was really kind of one of the first temples or tabernacles of God, where God walked with man, where God was, and he met with his people. You can trace that all throughout, all the way from Genesis to Revelation as that's developed. But as we'll see, there's no temple here, there's no tabernacle here, because there's no sin here. And one day in Revelation, Jesus is going to return, and there will be no temple again, because sin will have been totally eradicated out of the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, no need for barriers. You follow? So that's for you to check out later and let that just kind of blow your mind. But God made this garden. He put them in there. He made all these trees. And he says, you may eat of every tree, every plant, everything, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. I'm going to warn you, I googled images for like, forbidden fruit and tree, and you get some really weird images. So just beware. <laughs> so I was like, what is this, right? I tried to depict that, but it was too, too much weird stuff. So of all the trees of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of that one. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first thing to know about this is that God's commands, brothers and sisters, when God commands you to do something, it never withholds good from you. You have to believe that about God's commands. When he says, do this, he isn't withholding good from you. He's unleashing his goodness to you, rather. He's unleashing his goodness to you. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. God does, he withholds nothing good when he commands you to do something. It's not like this God and he's like, man, I just don't want you to have fun. Don't drink. I don't want you to have fun. Don't get intoxicated. Don't do this. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't do this. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to enhance it. He's trying to unleash good for you because he knows the way this world operates. He made it. So God's commands don't withhold good from us. They unleash his goodness to us. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God means good for you. Now, some of you grew up in a church and, you, you know, the pastor did something weird or you just had a bad experience with God and you think God is out to get you or against you. Brothers and sisters, God is for you. He made you. He formed you. He loves you. He knows you intimately. He knows exactly, exactly what will satisfy your soul. And when he gives you a command, he means to do that through it. So don't view it as a judge, a harsh judge to a prisoner, but view his commands like a loving father to his children. That's the way he means for us to do it. The next thing to notice, where God's commands are broken, death always follows. When his commands are broken, death, destruction will always follow. So that was the command. Don't eat of the one tree, you may have everything else. Number two, the challenge. Number two, the challenge. This comes in Genesis 3, 1 to 5. It enters now with 
a big change of the narrative. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. And the serpent goes to Eve and he says, did God actually say, did he actually, doubting God, twisting his words as you're going to see, did he actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No. And then he goes on to say, after the woman responds, and she also twists the word of God, no, we may eat of all the trees except for the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. The serpent responds, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to see what happens, and we'll see this more in a moment, but basically, when God's words twisted, even slightly, slightly, he changed one word, any. You shall not eat of any tree. When God's word is twisted, it opens the door for confusion and chaos for perversion of God's word, because Satan, in a sense, was half true. You shall not surely die. God knows when you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that true? When they ate of it, were they like God? Did they know good and evil? Yeah, they did. And you watch, you'll see what happened with Eve. She saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes and desire to make one wise, so she took and ate. John would reflect back and give a very similar pattern for all of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. She saw it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it, desires, it was desired to make one wise, so she took and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was around the corner, oblivious to what was happening. No, she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where God's words are twisted and his truths distorted, confusion will follow, brothers and sisters. And know this, the pain of disobedience is always, always hidden in the fine print. The pain of disobedience is always hidden in the fine print. And I just want to take a minute to notice Adam and Eve's response. First, who did the serpent speak to first? Eve. Who was created first? Adam. Who did God call when he's walking in the garden to account for what happened first? Adam. Now, if you were here for our last lesson on gender, we noted in that point that God created a divine order for the gender roles. Men are primary in their responsibility to lead, protect, provide, and guide their families spiritually, physically, and all-encompassing. Doesn't mean soul responsibility. It's not purely their responsibility. It doesn't mean that they don't interact with their wife. It means the primary weight of responsibility falls on the men to lead. And so I said last week, 
Biblical masculinity is an exercise in weight-bearing. You are bearing the responsibility for others. Now, Satan or the serpent, and if you want to know why I'm saying it's Satan, and how do we know it doesn't say it's Satan, go check out book of Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 later, and I'll let you figure out that tells us exactly who this is. Now, Satan mounted an assault, a direct assault on God's created order. They weren't in trouble when she ate of the fruit. They were in trouble when Adam stood there and did nothing. That's when they were in trouble. One pastor said it like this. What is Adam doing while Eve, his wife, is engaging with the most dangerous opponent she could ever face? He's standing there doing nothing. And one pastor commented, it is the greatest danger to the church. This is the greatest shame of the church. Men who are there that do nothing. If you were to ask Adam, are you a good guy, Adam? He'd say, yeah. If you were to ask Adam, do you do drugs? No. Do you swear? No. Have you had an affair? Are you sexually immoral? No. You struggle pornography? No. Are you a good guy? No. Why? Because you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. Speak up and lead, Adam. Men, man, I love you. But this has got to be a church. This is, by the word of God, the worst thing you can do is nothing in leading your families. And loving your wives like Christ loved the church. You can't abdicate your responsibility to others. Here, I'm going to let mom be the comfort to my wife that she needs. I'm going to let grandparents raise my children and teach them the word of God. I'm going to let other people do what God told me to do. Because at the end of the day, God's going to come walking in the garden. And he's going to say, Adam, where are you? He's not going to call grandma and grandpa to reckon. He's not going to call wife to reckon for your responsibilities. Men, the worst thing you can do is nothing. That's exactly what Adam did. Eve, what did she do? Eve was engaging in conversation when she should have been walking away. She was engaging with an opponent when she should have walked away. Ladies, there are some opponents, opponents that you engage in that you shouldn't be Christian nice to. You shouldn't be prim and proper to. Biblical femininity is not about submitting to all authority. It's about opposing all God-opposed authority. That's the biblical womanhood. The moment the serpent twists the words of God, she should have been, no. I'm having no conversation with you if you want to dishonor God. And this is a lesson for all of us. Not just women. Ladies, there are some conversations you should just, you know what, this isn't honoring to God. I'm not going to, I'm going to go here. Don't even engage this conversation. Men, we have the same thing. There are some we engage in conversations that we shouldn't even be talking about because it, by its very nature, dishonors God like gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe they're doing this. 
And when you choose to take the bait and engage, you are acting exactly like our first parents, Adam and Eve. No different. You are engaging with the enemy when you should be walking away. So, Satan's assault was very, very successful, I would say. He assaulted God's order, and we're going to see when God comes and curses, number three. Number three is the curse. When God curses, he's going to curse this very order, and there's going to be pain and trials in it. Number three, the curse. What's the result? The result is immediate separation from one another and from God. Immediately from one another, their eyes were open, and they were what? They knew they were naked. So they sow fig leaves on each other to try and hide. There's shame, there's fear, there's guilt, there's separation. Okay, one pastor said, instead of the two becoming one, the one became two. They separated from one another. Sin immediately broke their relationship, their fellowship. And there's also separation from God. They are hiding and they were fearful. Know this, sin will always, always distort our image of God. For example, it makes us think we can hide, makes us think we can hide some things from God or blame him for our problems. That's exactly what Adam does. And in so doing, we dishonor him. Isn't that foolish? It says, the Lord is walking in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And it's like Adam is hiding. Maybe he won't see me down here. Right? It's just foolish. God he created you. He sees all things. The very fact that you're hiding is dishonoring to who he is. Sin distorts your image of God and, as many have noted, makes you do foolish things. And in so doing, we dishonor him. So what was the result of the curse for each and every individual in this scene? Number one, the serpent. First, the serpent, he goes from crafty, he was the most cunning and wise, to cursed. He deceived the woman, and it is through the woman's offspring that he will be crushed. More about that on number four. We're not going to tackle questions like, did snakes have legs right now? We're not going to do that whole thing right now, all right? I'll let you go and study that. Just know, if they did have legs, that would be terrible. It's disgusting. It'd be like a centipede. A big one with legs that can run around, all right? It'd be horrible. It's like a horror movie, okay? So either way, I'm thankful they don't have legs, and I'm thankful they're not in Hawaii, amen? We're not going to tackle those right now. Eve. So I want you to notice her roles, their roles that God mandated them. Adam, what are you going to do in the garden? Work it and keep it. Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Each of the roles are going to now be inserted with pain and hardship. Eve, in childbearing, there will be pain. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Man, if only that was an intimate desire that I was talking about. This wouldn't be a curse. This would be a blessing, right? If only it was like, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. You're going to have the hots for him all the time. No, that's not what this is. His des her desire will be to rule and dominate over him, to reverse the roles, what, exactly what Satan did. Where Adam was made to lead and love and serve and be gracious and kind, Eve is going to try and usurp that. 
her desire will be to rule over her husband. You'll see that more clearly in chapter 4 as to why I'm saying that. But this is going to be the result. And the result is not going to be that he's going to lead you in love and patience, that he's going to be your Romeo. No, the result is that he's going to rule over you in harshness. Adam, the ground is going to be cursed. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles and briars. By the sweat of your brow, work will become difficult now, and you will be subject to death. Adam, who was created to live for eternity, would now be subjected to death. And God, he always judges sin. Know this, God always, not sometimes he has exceptions because he's a loving God. No, he always judges sin. He has to. He is God. If he did not, he would be unrighteous and not God. God always judges sin because is he a loving God? Yes, but he's also a holy God and a righteous God and a just God. He is perfect in all of his perfection. So his love is a holy love and therefore it cannot love wickedness. Number four, the cross. And this is how God's love, his holy love, can be shown to sinners without compromising his holiness. The answer is the cross. Jesus, in the book of John, chapter 5, he says to his opponents, if you believe Moses, then you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. The first five books of the Bible, thousands of years before Jesus ever steps foot on the scene, Moses writes of Jesus. Where is that? It's in Genesis 3.15. This is called the gospel before the gospel. Because, see, the Bible isn't 66 separate storybooks. It's one story with one author and one aim, the glory of God with redemption as the means. And this is where it's at. And this is the promise that God, even in judgment now, check this out. God is judging sin, but even in his judgment, he's shining a light of hope. This is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, not the man. Everywhere else in, Gen in Genesis, it's always the man's seed, the man's offspring. But here, very different. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. These are what I like to call glimpses of grace. This is God promising long before it ever happens. See, the cross isn't God's plan B. And there'll be more about that next week. The cross isn't God's reaction to something he had no clue about what was going down. This is the glimpse of grace, God's plan A, so that his grace and glory would be praised for all of eternity. This is the gospel before the gospel. They weren't, here are other glimpses of grace. They weren't judged and executed immediately for their disobedience. This is what they should have been. They had no right for God to cover their, their nakedness with skins. They had no claims to 
a hope of a deliverer one day. They had no, notice this, that Adam, yes, the ground was to bring forth thorns and thistles, but what else would it still bring forth? Fruit. God didn't say no food at all. It's just there'll be pain with it. God's graciousness. Women, you can still bear children, but through much pain. God's grace, glimpses of grace all over this. They weren't judged and executed for their treason. They were covered with skins by God. They were kept from the tree of life. It's no accident that the tree of life shows up in Genesis and Revelation, believe it or not. And it would be a fascinating study if I walked you through that. But right now, we live life between the two trees. Now, why is it a big deal? Why is it God's grace that he kept them from the tree of life? Because had they eaten of it, they would have lived forever in sin. They would have lived forever in brokenness. But in God's grace, he allowed them to die so that he could redeem them. And one day when they eat of it, they will have new bodies with new capacities and new experiences of joy. Now, we're going to transition to some application. What does all this mean now? What does all this mean for me right now? Thank you for walking me through this. What does this mean? John Bunyan said this, if you would more fully express yourself before the Lord, if you would more fully express yourself before the Lord, study first your filthy estate. Study your filthy estate. Secondly, God's promises. Thirdly, the heart of Christ. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to study our filthy estate. Now, brothers and sisters, consider how much death and pain came from their sin. Your whole life, all of Genesis is going to record the spiral down into sin with chapter 4, the first murder, Cain and Abel killing a brother. How awful is sin? Or rather... Is this an indication of how holy God is? So we can ask it two ways. How awful is the sin that we commit? But the sin we commit is awful because God is awesome, is infinitely holy, is majestically beautiful. He is indescribable. And this is an indication of how holy he is. Keep in mind what their sin was. If we were to compare it to ours, they ate a fruit that they were told not to. I mean, they didn't go and sleep with an animal. They ate a fruit of a tree that they were told not to. What does this tell you about how awful sin is? Disobedience to God usurping God's authority. And that's really what was at stake. Who is God in this world? Am I going to live under the authority of God or is he withholding from me to where I want to come out from under his authority and be my own God? I don't want to bear the image of God. I want to bear my image. Have we minimized the horrors of sin, brothers and sisters? Have we minimized it? If so, how 
If so, have you considered how this belittles God's glory? Now, how would we minimize it? How would we minimize the horrors of sin? Here's a few ways. One, by rejecting some sins while condoning others and excusing still yet others. What are you talking about? So we'll reject some sins and we'll call those for what they are. We'll pick and choose. We'll minimize the sins that we are comfortable with. This is how it happens. Okay, sexual immorality, yep, that's bad. Homosexuality, yep, that's bad. Drunkenness, wicked. Right? All these things, these are bad. We can just go to drug use, awful, sin, 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 sin. Yes, preach against it, pastor. We reject those things as we should, but we condone other sins. We don't just condone them. We even hold them close to us. Our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, we, man, we hold that close to us. Our envy, our gossip, our jealousy, we hold that. We don't reject it. We condone it. And we don't call it sin. We call it something else. We call it brotherly concern. We call it, I'm just trying to be wise, so I'm going to gossip about my brother and sister. And we harbor and we stick close to Satan. We do the exact same things. We condone these other sins, even in the church. And in the process, we kill our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know three times in the New Testament, Paul says, have nothing to do with a so-called brother who is divisive? Three times at least. What's he doing? He's not smoking weed and just beating his wife. He's being divisive. And we harbor these types of things in our churches and in our lives. We are at odds with brothers and sisters for whom Christ died for, and we say it's okay. This is how we minimize sin, and we excuse most of it. Well, you don't know what happened. You don't know this, or... They did this to me, or this is how I feel. My feelings are hurt. Richard Baxter said it like this, brothers and sisters, if the thoughts, I believe it will be up here, if the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thoughts of sin be pleasant. If the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thoughts of sin be pleasant. Now, for my friend here who might not be a Christian, non-Christian, what does this mean for you? This means that you are not a child of God. You are under the wrath of God because you are a sinner. That's what this means. That means your prayers are not heard by God. It means he rejects them and he is not pleased with any good that you do. This is what the teachings of Scripture but that's bad news, and you're in that category because there's Adam, and Romans chapter 5 says that in Adam, as his descendant, you inherit the same nature, the same God-defying, authority-usurping nature as your father, Adam. All of us do this, and because of this, we are under the wrath of God. He will judge us. But that's not the good news. The good news is that there's not one Adam in the Bible. There's actually two Adams in the Bible. Two Adams. This is the good news. All of us are born into the first Adam. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 refers to Jesus as the second 
Adam. And both of these Adams represent as heads, if you will, two groups of people. The first Adam, when you are born, you get death, condemnation, wrath, despair, hopelessness, joylessness, and the list goes on and on. The second Adam, Jesus, if you are in him, you get life, joy, peace, rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You get joy. Not joy that's temporary, but joy that nobody can steal from you. You get all of these things in Christ, but more than the things, you get Christ himself, God, the perfection of beauty. To be in the first Adam, you have to be born. To be in the second Adam, you have to be born again. This happens by faith and repentance. Dear friend, Jesus came to restore broken fellowship to God. You are cut off if you are not in Christ. You're cut off from God. And Jesus said, 1 Peter 3 says, He died that he might bring you to God. He says, 1 Timothy 2, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's a quote up here by Michael Lawrence. He's a theologian. He says, we can no more fix ourselves than a slave can free himself. We can no more fix ourselves than a slave can free himself. A slave must be freed and so must we. Brothers and sisters, Christ offers you freedom this morning through the gospel. Repent and believe. Christian, sin is going to quench your spirit. It's going to quench the spirit of God in you, and it's going to sear your spiritual taste buds. This is what sin will do. Bear with me, if you will. It'll quench your spirit. The Bible says, do not quench the spirit of God that is in you. Now, there are two ways that you can quench a fire. Any firemen in here? No, they're probably putting out fires somewhere, right? There's two ways you can quench a fire. The first way is you can cut out its oxygen, its supply. Christian, brother, sister, the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, are your very life source. Jesus, when he is tempted in the wilderness, said, Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Word of God, if you are neglecting it, is like snuffing out your life source. That's the first way you will quench the Spirit in your life. There's another way, though. Not just what we don't do, like reading scripture, that'll quench the spirit. The other way is you can throw fire, or sorry, water on it. And it'll extinguish the flame. One way we throw water on the spirit's working is by remaining in sin without repenting from it having known sin that is owning you, and we refuse to lay down arms. And that is like throwing water on any work the Spirit's going to do. It is going to quench the very life out of it. 
So even though you might be reading, man, I'm reading the scripture, I, I do this, I, I went to Bible college, I do serve in the church, I'm a pastor. If I'm reading and I'm intaking, but I'm living in known sin, it's like throwing water on sticks. It'll quench the very life out of you. This is what sin does. And then what starts to happen is it's this nasty downward spiral because now the fuel is wet now the wick is wet, and we want, we're like, man, I want God to work now. I want to feel again. I want to have joy in the Lord, but I'm lighting the fire, and it's not lighting immediately. It's because we've been dousing our souls with the water of sin. Now, yes, God could come in in an instant and lick it all up and spark a blaze, but his most often method of Lighting a fire in your soul is by a steady daily intake of fellowshiping, fellowshipping with God through his word and prayer, abiding in the truths of the gospel that Christ is righteous for me. And as we do this, it's like laying sticks, just building up a pile. And man, the spirit, when he lights it, it sets ablaze. It's not straw of experience that we're laying on top. It is the thick logs that burn. We've all seen people like this who lay on kind of an experiential high that they get this spiritual high, but it's almost, it's not rooted in the word of God, but in experiences. And so it's like straw and you light it and it just poof. It burns hot fast, but it's gone. There is no shortcut. To, laying, to sawing down logs of the Spirit, and you just lay them on there. When the Spirit burns it, on the flip side, there's a fire that burns so intensely, that burns so hot, that not even a fireman with his fire hose can extinguish it. It's like a squirt gun on the fire because it's just raging. Brothers and sisters, this can be yours in Christ. He came that he might bring you to God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, the same spirit that empowered the obedience of Christ, that empowered it and sustained it during his humility on earth, that same spirit, Romans 8 says, is at work in you who believe. That same one, don't quench it. Sever both the root of sin and the shoot of sin. This might mean radical acts obedience. I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about Christ-centered on the power of the gospel, fighting and severing the root of sin. And it will have outward manifestations. It's not legalism. Brothers and sisters, check this out. If you are addicted to social media, cut it off. If it's keeping you from being with God, kill it. Delete the app. It's not worth it. Don't harbor it. If you are engaging in gossip, it says it's like tiny morsels that go down into the soul. I know it tastes good, but brothers and sisters, don't engage for your own soul. It is killing you. It is killing your relationship with God. 
Turn and trust Christ. There's forgiveness. If you are engaged in pornography through your computer and you say, aha, I'm like Adam. I've got Google Chrome and I can delete all my cookies and nobody will ever see it. Know that the eyes of him who sees all things will call you to account. Delete it. Cut it off. Get some help. Or maybe you're harboring bitterness or any other. I could just go on and on. Brothers and sisters, sever both the root and the shoot of sin, whatever it is. If it's TV, don't, don't play around with it. Get rid of it. And again, it's not legalism. It's grace-driven kingdom efforts for the glory of Christ. And then last, don't fight it alone. Don't fight it alone. Lean on your brothers and sisters in the Lord. When I was a police officer, the worst thing we could do was go into a, a heated situation, a domestic violence or a fight in a bar with lots of people alone. It was foolish. Brothers and sisters, sin is a far more formidable foe than anything you will ever deal with. Don't do it alone. David Clarkson said this, He is the most faithful friend and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. In other words, if you find somebody who's willing to talk to you about sin in your life, love that person. Who's willing to help you bear the burden of doing things wrong, love that person. Don't be angry at them. Don't push them away. They are a faithful friend. They might do it clunky and they might offend you and be like, well, they could have said it differently and it hurt my feelings, right? But the fact is that they said it and they didn't leave you where nobody else would. Love those people. And finally, in that book I mentioned earlier, the last battle, the last chapter, Farewell to the Shadowlands, it's the final book, the last page of the last book of the last chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes this. And I quote, There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Christian, this is your hope in Christ. This is meant to empower and sustain your grace-driven efforts for a lifetime. For others, non-Christians, this is your invitation. Jesus came to restore your relationship with God. Will you trust him this morning? I hope you will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you that 
The last word over us is not the curse or judgment, but because of Jesus, it can be grace in life. Lord, if there are any here who are struggling with sin, may you strengthen them now. This moment, sever it by the promise of Christ that forgiveness of sins is available. Lord, did you save many people? Would you make this church a church that shows forth your love and hope to a dying world? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.